This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. I was the director of communications for President Obama's White House and Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. During that campaign, I heard a lot of wild things about the woman I worked for, but the most frustrating was, I don't know, there's just something about her, something I don't like. My takeaway was that ambitious women still make us feel uncomfortable. That's why I started this podcast, to meet the women who have made it to the top by charting their own path and not modeling themselves after men. Here to help me introduce our next guest, my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, who do we have on board for today? Our guest for this week's episode is Judge Rosemary Aquilina. And before we get into it, I do want to let our listeners know that there will be some explicit and possibly upsetting content in this episode because Judge Aquilina was the sentencing judge in the Larry Nasser case. Um, if you remember, Nasser was the USA women's gymnastics team doctor who got life in prison for sexually abusing young gymnasts. At his sentencing hearing, Judge Aquilina let more than 160 gymnasts confront Nasser and tell their stories. She was so supportive of them and pretty harsh on him, if you want to take a listen. You played on everyone's vulnerability. I'm not vulnerable, not to you, not to other criminals at that podium. I swore to uphold the Constitution and the law, and I am well-trained. And I want you to know, as much as it was my honor and privilege to hear the sister survivors, it is my honor and privilege to sentence you because, sir, you do not deserve to walk outside of a prison ever again. So that was Judge Aquilina. And since you're our communications expert, Jen, what do you hear in there? How much power she takes back. You know, she said, you played on everyone's vulnerability. I'm not vulnerable. I swore to uphold the Constitution and the law, and I am well-trained. You know, it's just like if there's a moment where he thinks that he can prey upon her or assume that she may have doubts about her self-confidence because she's a woman in a a male-dominated field, she is letting him know that she is not going to be intimidated. And, you know, I think women, we always discount the power of our own voice, but this is a good example of how much power your words can have. Yeah, absolutely. I I just hear so much confidence in her there. And I just read her new book, Just Watch Me, and a lot of confidence in that woman that came from a lot of hardship as well. So I'm very excited to hear her story. Yeah, you texted me in the middle of that and you're like, this is so good. This book is so good. (laughs) I know. I know. It really is. (laughs) All right, let's hear from her. Judge Aquilina, thank you so much for joining us on Just Something About Her. I'm really honored and pleased to have you with us. Oh, it's my honor to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. There's so much to delve into with you. I'm really excited to have you because I think most people know you as a sentencing judge from the Larry Nassar case, where you allowed more than 160 gymnasts to tell their stories of sexual abuse um, at the hands of their team. Doctor was a really big moment in American culture, a really big Me Too moment. And you gave a scathing speech to him at the end, all non-traditional things for women to do. But that's what this podcast is about. It's about women stepping outside of sort of the roles that men have traditionally played, how we have like sort of followed their path in different careers and creating your own roles. And you've been doing that your whole career and life. 
because you believe the judicial system, other parts of society aren't working well for everyone, particularly women and children. And that's what we're going to delve into today. Great topic. (laughs) Great topic. There's a lot to cover there. Yeah. And most people are really positive about who I am and what I do, not just in Nassar, but in many other cases. Yeah. But it's interesting that they have to seek me out to tell me things like, I don't like you or I like what you're doing. And I often wonder if I was a man, would you approach me? Would you say these things? Would you think I was too harsh? And I always come back with the resounding, hell no, if I was a man, they would respect the things I stand for. And I find that just incredibly maddening. Yeah, you don't have to wonder. (laughs) You start by saying, I wonder, because I know that they want. Because if you are a woman moving forward, you're going to draw fire. And I think in your case, your woman's doing something, doing a job that we normally see men in, and you're doing it differently than the men. Right. So that seems to be the sort of double whammy. But yeah. And it goes down to very basics. It's just interesting. You know, I usually wear my cowboy boots and jeans or some kind of leggings or something that's comfortable because I have to wear the robe. And I see male judges in the judicial elevator who Mm -hmm. say to me, Aquilina, jeans and boots again. And I say, why judge golf pants again? (laughs) (laughs) They don't seem to understand. That too is a sign of, I'm going to do what I damn well please, because if you can do it, I can do it and I can do it better. And what you damn well please is something different than what they damn well please, right? Right. Okay. So I want, I want to go back and give people a sense of, you know, your career as a judge. Um, I mean, I'm going to go back all the way back um, for your whole life because I think there's a lot that people can learn from, but it seems that like you've had particular focus on abuse, neglect, sexual abuse. Um you say your career and your style as judge is to listen and respond to survivors. Yeah. What made you bring those kinds of approaches and skills to the bench, particularly in these kinds of cases? Yeah. So I think we are who we are by the time we're what, age five. And by the time I was age five, I had grandparents who were telling me, you can be anything, you can do anything, you can accomplish all these things. And yet everybody's giving me the girl toys and I'm looking at my brother and he's got the more interesting toys. And then through a long story, which I won't go through now, but ultimately I lived with my grandparents and they helped raise me. And I thought they were my parents. My parents come and they take me to live with them, which truly was their right. Sure. But I didn't know that as a kid. So my whole life I spent feeling kidnapped and not having a voice and not having the equal toys. And so as I moved into childhood, adulthood, teenagehood, all those things, all the things that we go through. I was the misfit troublemaker and my father was just beside himself because I lived in a very patriarchal home and he was the ruler. For me to say no to him when he had three other obedient children was just horrifying to him, but it was horrifying to me to not be believed and heard. And so I really spent my whole life and my whole career wanting to do my own thing and speak for those people who also were shut down. One of the things that I absolutely hate, and I've tried to make my life's career uh, and not be real verbal about it because I have only realized how powerful it is, is to not ask the damn why question. Why needs to retire into science? (laughs) Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So think about every human can think about their own life experience from the time they were growing up until they get married and their husband comes home 
and says, why did you buy that? Or the mother says, why didn't you do your homework? Why didn't you clean your room? Why immediately shames and blames and it shuts you down. And so no one gets the whole story. Think about it. We all have those stories. But when you ask, what would you like me to know? You're actually listening. You're telling the person that you're listening. You're here for them. You're going to partner with whatever it is they need. So what would you like me to know and how can I help has really been my life's mantra. Obviously, in the Nasser case, it became full light. I think people saw it. And a number of attorneys and actually judges contacted me and said, geez, I'm going to start using that. It was really in that moment that I thought, I can't possibly be the only one who felt like this or learned to ask this question. Um, But I learned that very early on in my life and in my career. What point did you decide to ask that question in your career? My first job after law school was working for a state senator. And I did a lot of constituent work with a lot of people who needed help. They couldn't find resources. And then sort of simultaneously with that, I joined the military. And of course, I was the token female. And so all of the minorities, like I would get cornered in the bathroom and I used to tell my commander, I'm not AWOL. Someone has talked to me in the bathroom or in a corner, or in a closet, wherever we could talk because they didn't want to be seen talking to the JAG uh, officer. Right. 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 And uh-huh. so to get the story and to really help pull it out, because you can listen to a story for hours and not understand the point. I really learned the value of what would you like me to know and how can I help? Because it gets to the point of why are they approaching me? What do they need? And I'm here to listen and help you, but I need to know, you know, sort of backwards, start from the end and then tell me. And it just worked so beautifully. And time and time again, commanders told me, the senator told me, how is it you've learned these things when no one else knows them about this human who wouldn't tell, you know, 10 other people who are close to them, but they told you. Yeah. And so I learned how powerful that was. And so I, when I became a judge, I did this with my clients, but when I became a judge, from day one, that has been the question that I ask. And I get information that attorneys approach and say, judge, can I approach? And I say, sure. Judge, how did you do that? I've met with them dozens of times and you got information from them that they would never divulge to me. And they did it in the public courtroom. I want to pause for a second because I think that that's just good advice in general for people, right? Because particularly if you have a friend or a family member who's in a bad situation, and I think particularly with women, we feel like, we have to fix the situation, right? Because that's how we make things all better. That's, I feel like in the lack of real power, that's what women do. But you can't take on everybody's problems or solve everyone's problems. It's not realistic. So to say, what do you want me to know? And how can I help? That is giving the person the power to ask for the help they need and letting you know what you can do and let go of the things that you can't do. Right. And I think it also helps empower people because people... And and I'm like this. I don't want you to solve all my problems. I want to be the hero in my story. But sometimes I need help unlocking the door. And I think when you tell people that they can be their hero, they don't even realize that. And then they hear it and then they think, oh, she must think I'm valuable. She thinks I matter because I can do this. And they empower themselves. And really, that's what happened, not just in Nassar, but in thousands of cases that I've heard. And I've watched the outcome. And to me, it's just pretty incredible. We wanted to play a clip um, from the Larry Nasser uh, trial, and there were a few moments where you addressed him in that case that were really heart wrenching. And you know, as we as we've been discussing now, it is lessons and experiences that you brought from professional development and also personal that gave this woman this really powerful advice. Before I get to sentencing, I, I want to talk about a couple of things, and first. I've said what I need to say to the victims. 
I have a little bit more to say. You are no longer victims. You are survivors. You're very strong, and I've addressed you individually. Keep your voice up. I think we discount the power of words, and women can often do that. Think what they have to say isn't going to be heard or isn't going to matter. And you said before that's sort of how you experience part of your growing up. Why was it so important to you to distinguish between victim and survivor for these women? Because victims um, turn into survivors and then thrivers. They are victims once a crime is reported or crime happens. And when they come to court, when they report to police, when they take matters in their own hands, they decide in their mind, I am a survivor. I'm going to get past the hell with you. You know, I'm going to take away your power. It's about me now. I'm going to be present here. I'm telling what happened. And it's such a powerful moment when you see them go from victim to survivor. And there is not one person who appeared in front of me in the Nasser case who isn't thriving now. They have some setbacks. They always will. But they left so empowered. They came in front of me very tiny. It didn't matter who, very scared. And as they approached, and, you know, judge, may I, may I say a few words to him? Yes, you may. And I watched them grow 10 feet tall. And then they turned to me and I gave them, which I always have done is gave them some words of encouragement because I wanted them to know they mattered. I believe them. Yay for you. I see the power. I saw them go from not just victim to survivor, but on the path to thriver. What more could we ask of a courtroom than that? But it's a very unconventional way to do the job. Right. Right. In somebody else's courtroom. But for 16 years, that's exactly what I've done. When they tell me I can't do it, I'll walk off the bench. I'll lobby for it. I'll do another kind of work. We need to be able to understand what's happening. We need to be inviting. We need to show the people it's their courtroom. And it's not frightening. They ought to be part of what we do. And I want them to know that they are heard and they matter, each and every one of them, that they're not a number. They're not just a case that might desk that, you know, I have to get rid of, but that each time someone comes in front of me, I am present for that case as if it's the only case. And I think that's the justice system. So if nobody else does that, it's okay with me. I'm doing it. That is your sense of what justice is, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Particularly when, you know, in the Nasser case and other cases involving sexual abuse against women, I guess the women have gone from victims to survivors and you know that they can be stronger or what's what's in your mind about the victims when you're trying to seek justice you know i ask victims what do you think should happen yeah i just had a case where a woman was actually raped first degree rape by a couple of men Mm -hmm. and it was pled down to a csc third which is a 15 year and the victim said i just want him to get some help Hmm. But she felt so very strongly, and I think she just didn't want to go to trial. So there was a recommendation for no upfront jail. Mm -hmm. And I said, hell no, I'm sorry. And the family even said, we forgive, we just want to move on, and we just don't, you know. And so I sent each one of them to jail, and then there'll be uh, rehab and long-term probation. They may very well go to prison. And I allowed them to withdraw their plea. Neither one of them did. Now, that's always a fear. I fear victims will commit suicide if they think there's going to be a trial. You know, there's a lot of other pieces to this people don't talk right, about. Right, right. The fear right, factor right, of the right. victim. You've called the justice system an injustice system because of the way it treats victims and survivors. Yes, a- absolutely. 
say more about that. So sometimes I have to make the call of this deal that's offered is, is too good of a deal for this. And this person's going to need longer behind bars, needs more of an impact. We need to look at the impact of others. If you're only getting a slap on the wrist, then other rapists are going to say, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing what I do and get more blatant and bold about it. We've got to stop this. And the justice system's broken in so many ways. But one of the first ways that we really need to look at is that each and every time someone is raped, that's a count. In the Nasser case, for example, Trine Gonser, he assaulted her over 800 times. Why weren't there 800 charges? Now, you can say to me, that will break our justice system. We won't have the time. Well, okay, but isn't our system one that is supposed to be about justice? And what? Ha- what aren't you discounting the victim when you say we're only going to have one charge when you were assaulted 800 times? We need to tell them they matter from the first time that investigation's done and there is an information that's authorized, we, we need to look at that. Now, deals come down the pike, but maybe they won't get as good a deal. Maybe we'll figure out we need to have some more help because then there's the other flip side where people say, well, you just think everybody's guilty. No, I don't. But I can tell you that every study that I've read where there's false reporting, there is no greater false reporting on sexual assault than any other crime. We have nothing to fear except allowing predators to continue to thrive and not addressing it properly. Um, This is a really interesting time because we're currently having these two big simultaneous conversations. One, we need to make sure the path to justice isn't stacked against victims, especially women. And two, we need to address over-policing and over-criminalization people of color or people making it easier for rehabilitation. And you're trying to change the system from within. You like, you do your part. How do you wish it worked? What are, what are your goals? I wish the law was applied equally. I have seen, I have tossed my share of cases against minorities. Um, I wish that the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court would even look at some of the film because you don't get the gist of what's happening in court unless you see it to believe it. Sometimes the the record is just really incomplete. It doesn't talk to color. It doesn't talk to tears on the face. We try to make the best record we can. There should be cameras in every courtroom Mm -hmm. like there is in the legislature. So you see what happens. I think that people would do the right thing if they knew the cameras were on. The legislature has cameras. I worked there for 10 years. There were cameras on all the time. I learned to ignore them because it was like wallpaper. That would happen with judges in the courtroom, but the people would then see what's happening in our justice system and maybe people would start cleaning it up. You know? Yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting. That's a, that is like a, I love it when people like that. That is a concrete idea. If people see what's happening, they can be held to account. I mean, it does seem more, you know, that's what was behind me too, right? More people being seen and held to account. Look, I see it with, even in, in the attorney general cases. So let's just talk about a really simple case. Felony non-support. So somebody's really behind in their child support. I have seen the white guy get a hell of a deal where if he pays so much, then he's going to get an attempt, which is a two-year instead of a four-year, or it'll go down to a misdemeanor, or maybe it'll be dismissed. Mm -hmm. But a minority who's behind and maybe has five files, he's not going to get. He's going to have that felony. They're going to stick it to him. And now he can't get a job. And he already had a difficult time. There needs to be, at every level, this colorblindness that we're supposed to have. And I know that's not the right term because everybody wants to be seen. But in the law, we should not be able to look at someone's sexual preference or their color 
or their status in life, we should look at the elements. Do they fit or not? And everybody should get the same plea deal if they fit in that same box. And that's not happening. And the media, you know, they're the watchdogs. Why aren't they in the courtroom reporting even on those things? Because they would be fixed immediately. And legislators would say, geez, I didn't know that. Let's address it. Right. And what do you think that how the system would change if judges and prosecutors were more diverse, more women are graduating from law school, but still women make up about a third of state judges, um, 79% of prosecutors are white men. I do think that would change because we're representative of the people, yeah. uh, similar to being, you know, I was the first female JAG in the history of the Michigan Army National Guard. It took me a hell of a long time to get in. Um, But then all the minorities came to me because they saw me as their voice. And I think Mm -hmm. as judges, we are the voice of our community. So we need to be diverse. If we're all coming from the same place, then the people are not being properly served and we are underrepresenting the community who elected us. It does feel to me, I mean, I see it in my own life in politics. It's like, you know, I worked for Hillary Clinton. She didn't win. Right. I see a whole bunch, a whole generation of women candidates right behind her that will. I see it in, you know, this time a woman ran Joe Biden's campaign. The White House uh, communications team is the very best people. They happen to be female. They happen to be a diverse group of women. So it's like, I do see the talent is flowing. Like, you know, it's frustrating. It's always slower than you want it to be, but it does seem to be working from what I can see from my perspective of my career. Do you see it in yours? Do you I see do that? see like, it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I do see it. I, I think, though, that we have some challenges. Like, I have five kids, and at, for a time, I had my own office. Yeah, that's, which is amazing. How, what, what ages are they? So 39, 38, uh, 20, and the twins are 10. Wow. So um, I'm done now. Um, they've worn me out. But, you know, here's the thing. When I had my own office, I would bring the baby to work, and everyone in my staff, I, I loved hiring pregnant women. I think women work the hardest, especially when we're moms. Mm-hmm. But um, we need to have more places, even in the White House. I don't know. Do they have a daycare there? I don't know. But we ought to have some daycares yeah. and so that women can actually be in the workforce and be equal pay, uh, regardless of whether we have kids. You know, there are studies, even of doctors, female doctors, who earn $100,000 less than the male doctor who does the same damn job. And the question was raised, Why? And they said, well, she has a uterus, she's, she has babies, or she's going to have babies, she runs home and the male doctor doesn't. Well, we can change that. And certainly that should not be allowed. It shouldn't even be talked about like that because it takes two, yeah. two to have that yeah. baby. It's not just, you know, seven minutes of fun and the woman gets stuck for life and the man gets to go rise in his career. We need opportunities so that women can excel regardless of what they're doing at home and what their choices are. And I think we're going to get there with enough women in power, but we're not there yet. Just something about her. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back. I'm here with Judge Aquilina. You've written about being in an abusive relationship right after your divorce, um, that you felt groomed was the word you said. Um, You said, Jake, the person in the relationship um was an evil person I still couldn't extricate myself how did that experience inform your work as a judge where you see you you have personal experience of how difficult Mm. it is to extricate yourselves from a bad situation 
was it that extricating yourself from that, you know, having been in that bad situation, like now you can look back and see he didn't value me. And it gives you that strength that you have, you clearly have now to understand that you have worth and people don't recognize it goes someplace else. But can you take us on that journey? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know that I would have in the relationship, I didn't realize I was uh, being groomed and, and all of that because, you know, we, we had a great relationship. We have a child together. There were a lot of great things that we did, but it got to be where I was meeting certain goals and things. And then I was told you have memory lapses and you can't do this. And, and from a guy who'd always told me I could, And the could part, what I realized when I really dissected it within myself was the things I could do were things that helped him and the things I couldn't do, (laughs) right? The couldn't fell in my category, became very clear. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't believe in throwaway people and I deeply loved him. It takes a while, a long while for me, apparently, to say goodbye to someone you love and to say, I have to walk away. Love is that most powerful thing and no one knows you like someone you've had sex with, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a deep intimacy. And so to believe the worst is really gut-wrenching and took me a long time. But overall, it was me saying, yeah, I'm going to fight for me. And eventually I did. And as I grew stronger, I really felt him be weaker. And I saw him for the weaknesses and it was easier for me to leave him. And I actually use that now on the bench. I tell people, you know, and I said this to Nasser, you know, as these army of survivors get stronger, he'll get weaker. It's just such an inner power. And there's, there's nothing that matches it when you're your own hero in your story. And so I've tried to help others. There are people who are in front of me who don't know something's wrong. And I say, I see the bag of rocks and they say, what? And I said, there's things you have not told anybody. I'm going to make you go to counseling. I want you to do individual and group, but I need you to tell your secret keeper, your counselor, what that bag of rocks is. And they will look at me in shock and say, how did you know? Mm -hmm. And I know because I've been there, I've carried the bag of rocks. Right. There's so much there. I mean, the idea of throwaway people, I want to get back to that. What about throwaway people in your own life? Because I feel like for a lot of women listening to this, they could be in a relationship that's not great or um, the person doesn't value them. You know, because I think a lot of people struggle with, is my boyfriend or my husband a bad person or a good person or, you know, my partner? um, And you're looking for every day, you're like looking for that one moment that's going to be the decisive one that's going to tell you for certain that they're good or bad. Um, And I think you're saying it's more complicated than that. Yeah, there are a lot of good people with bad problems. So they are angry, drunk. They are an abuser for different, you know, there's a lot going on, mental health issues, all of that. We really need to get to the bottom of that. But it is their responsibility to get to the bottom of that. And they cannot abuse you while they get to their issues. And it's not you taking on their issue and solving their problem. They have to be their own hero in their life the same way as you are. There's all sorts of opportunities in America to get medical help, to get mental health treatment, to get all the treatment. You just have to unlock some doors and ask for help. And I always say asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. And it's something we need to reteach. But we can't go and save somebody who doesn't want to be saved, who isn't ready to be saved. So you must walk away. You're not throwing them away. You are giving them the space to empower themselves to heal. And then if something works out, great. And if it doesn't, it wasn't meant to be. 
You need to choose your own path. You can't walk in someone else's dark shadow. You'll be hidden there forever. You need to step out of the shadow, own your life, because that's all you've got. At the end of the day, you have to live your life. You know, when you tell people, victims, they're going to get stronger and their um, abusers mm. are going to become weaker. Is there a light of recognition in their eyes or does it fall on deaf ears? How does that land? They usually smile. Um, I see some relief. Some of them just sort of stop and like they've never thought about that. And, you know, for many of them, especially when you're dealing with very young children, their abusers are the boogeyman in the closet. And they need to have that power taken away. So when I say they're going to, you know, shrivel away mm-hmm. and you are going to have that power, it's very clear to them, even the smallest of children who I've said that to. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not something, again, that I ever planned to say or that I even understood that I felt. But as I go inside and look at what I've felt and then see it in front of me, I feel like there's this connective spirit that I can tell them, OK, I've gone through the tunnel right? And you can too, but in my own way, because I have to attach it to their pain because everybody has to go through their own pain in their time. This is interesting that you don't believe in throwaway people. So that suggests you approach your job with a lot of empathy. So there are a lot of times where the prosecutor will say, yeah, we're recommending prison forever. Now, Nasser, he didn't get it. He didn't want to get it, didn't understand it. And I've had, you know, dozens of Nassers. I've put it in prison for life. Uh, my life has been threatened because of that. The whole thing, you know, there are certain people who I don't think they should have the death penalty, but I think they can't be with society for various reasons. But there are a lot of cases where people have been given up on, where I say, oh, wait a minute, this person has 37 crimes, but we know they're a drug user. Why haven't they ever gone to residential treatment? Let's pay for that. And they mm-hmm. come back and they say, you, you believed in me. Oh my gosh, I did this because of you. And I say, no, you did it because of you. You're the hero in your own story. They're the hero yeah. in your own story. Yeah. I had a man that actually my own law clerk had said, this is never going to work. You, you can't do this. And I said, I, I don't care. I don't believe in throwaway people. And the prosecutor had said to me, we're recommending life. And what he liked to do is expose himself. And he went in coffee shops and dry cleaners and in front of young women showed his penis. And he got some thrill of that. Well, that's a really weird, awful fetish. But here's what spoke to me. There was no history of violence or rape. And he was married for over 20 years and his wife stood by him. And she looked to be, I didn't know her. She looked to be very kind and genuinely there in support of him from what I could see. And I learned about a treatment through his lawyer that you could use the, I think it was Depro Provera or or Depro Lupron, I think it was. And that this would stop that urge. So we had an evidentiary hearing and the prosecutor said, I object, I object. I said, "Ah, that's okay. You take me to the court of appeals. So we had this evidentiary hearing. I listened to the expert testimony and I said, we're going to do it. So I put him in jail and the prosecutor said, no, no, you're not a doctor. You can't order him to take this. I said, I'm not. I'm doing what we do in every case. I'm saying, take your medicine as prescribed. Sir, are you going to do this? Yes. Ordered him to a year in jail. Every month they had the shot. He was on five years probation thereafter. Still could have gone to prison. Not so much as a traffic ticket. He's still taking the medicine. He's off probation successfully after five years and a year in jail. And now he can live his life. Isn't that what we want? Right, right. Um, I think a lot, you know, my background is in politics and and the press. And I think a lot about this notion of people being unbiased or um, objective. You know, in the press, they say, 
reporters always want to appear unbiased and, and that they're objective. And I think they do that because they want to have credibility, right? And I think it's misplaced to assume that appearing to be unbiased or appearing to be objective necessarily translates into credibility because we all bring our life experiences to everything that we do and we are very subjective in, in how we, you know, engage in our profession. So I actually think that it can hurt reporters because we're not certain um, where they're coming from, right? And it seems like they're hiding something if they don't tell you more about what they believe. How do you feel you, know, you bring a lot of your personal experiences uh, into the courtroom? You have your own sense of justice. Some people will say we shouldn't let your personal experience shape the way you engage with victims and defendants. But I feel like that's losing something. How do you protect your sense of being fair and impartial, I guess? Well, first of all, I'm highly trained. You know, I've been doing this a long time. But second, think about this. Judges are part of the community and the community elected me. I am their voice. Yeah. And for each and every case, the only way I can be their voice is if I listen fairly to both sides. And then I have to apply the law. And there are certain factors we have to consider in an unbiased way. Um, the rehabilitation of defendant, protection of society, punishment of defendant, deterrence of others, is a sentence proportional? You know, all of those factors play into every judge's decision and they play into my deciding what's going to happen at sentencing. Of course, the jury decides at a trial and when someone pleads, then they're saying, I did it. And so we go to sentencing, like in the Nasser case. So I listened to everyone, both sides, and yep. Nasser didn't have anybody. Had he had people, you know, his wife or colleagues or someone who wanted to speak on his behalf, would I have listened? Yes. I right. factor it all in. I factor it all in. And then I come out with a decision that's based on reason, law, common sense, and the situation and the factors. You know, can we rehabilitate the person? Nasser, no. He still thinks he didn't do anything wrong. And we have to look at the deterrence factor. And there's so much that's missing in our legal system anyway. I think that listening should not be missing. And I don't think it's biased to listen to both sides. I think that like the media, judges are information gatherers. Right. And then out of the information we gather, we apply the law and come to a reasonable decision. If the people don't like what I'm doing, unelect me. But I continue to get reelected and I've been unopposed in the last two elections. It's interesting in Michigan that you are elected. That's not true everywhere. But I guess in any system, in any state, you know, there are ways to remove judges that they feel like they're not doing justice. There are. Let's go to a quick break. Stick around to hear more. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. Our guest today is Judge Equilina. You've talked about the power of the row. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this magical cloak, the robe? Um, yeah. Can we all have one? Can we manufacture one? And, and what about for you when the robe comes off? Yeah, I think we all have that magic inside of us. Uh, the beauty of the robe is that when I'm in the robe, it's absolute permission to make these decisions, the tough decisions, and to use my inner girl, my inner gut to say, and this is what I'm doing for you today. And, you know, I got a, a letter from a prisoner. Uh, I went to the office to open some back mail and I opened up this lovely letter and actually wrote him a thank you from a prisoner who said, thank you for being so kind to me when you sentenced me to prison. 
Wow. And I think that's magical. I think that when you can listen to someone and do the right thing and in their gut, they intuitively know it was tough and it was hard, but it was the right thing. That's part of the magic. I don't know what I'm going to do when I put on the robe. I have all these horrible cases. I don't know what the answer is. I get on the bench. I listen. And then it's like God opens a door and says, here's what you do, Aquilina. And so that's the power of the road. But I also feel like I have that magic and every human has that if you just listen to your inner gut and take the time to hear it. I think sometimes we run to quick answers because they're safe, but they're not the right answers. But it does seem to, to bestow upon you this notion that you can trust your gut. But I guess you don't need the robe to trust your gut. You don't. For me, it's just that added layer of permission because I have such big decisions to make. But I right. think that before I wore the robe, I would, as a mm-hmm. small child, just look in the light of my eyes in the bathroom. I'd shut the door and I would talk myself through things. And I think that the magic that we have, we all have it. Look in the mirror, see the light in your eyes. That's your magic. And just take the time to have that conversation with yourself and the answers will come. But we all need to have that self-reflection, the self-care time. Otherwise, we self-implode. But the light in the eyes, there's your magic. Does taking off the robe help you leave some of the trauma behind that you, you, you see horrible things when you're in the robe? How do you compartmentalize? Yeah, I, I think it does to a degree. But what I do is I write, I write fiction. Sh- I- yes, it's insane that you're like, <laughs> my final question was how insanely productive are you? I guess you're looking at the light <laughs> of your eyes and telling yourself what to do. But I guess I'll choose to be inspired by how much you do. Well, yeah, here's the thing is, um, whether you are a judge or a carpenter or, or just a mom and you need some rest, but every single human needs it. You have to find it. So I love writing. That's what I wanted. To, I wanted to be a writer. And my dad said, no, you know, you need to be a doctor. And I, so I said, I'll be a lawyer because I know doctors hate lawyers. <laughs> but I've never left that, you know, desire to write. And so writing is I shut the door and there's time every single day that I will write. Every day you do this. Yeah. Then sometimes it's on a novel. Sometimes it's uh, other things I'm developing or just sayings or things that come to my mind or something I'm upset about. And I just have this boxes and books of papers and things that hope to, I hope to be inspired by later. But I also cook and I'm working in a recipe book for the, the kids, the family. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've been sewing and making masks and I oil paint and I, I do a lot of things that really give my brain this time to regenerate. And mm-hmm. so it takes me away from the bench. And so I come fresh every single day. But you need that respite every single day with uh, something that's so different than what you do. And then you'll be more productive than you ever thought. That is, And such I think more advice. on point because it declouds you, right? When you're cooking, mm-hmm. you're thinking about the smells and the scents. And of course, you know, it's if you're very absorbing. You can't focus on anything else. Yes. Yeah. And we know when I cook Maltese food, I hear my grandmother's voice, I smell the smells and I'm back in their kitchen, right? So there's so many things that don't cost us a lot of money that transport us into a really happy place. So no matter what happens, you know, you can regroup. I think that's just uh, self-care. It's a way of life for me. And that's how I'm able to do so much. I'm visiting my nephew right now, who's a naval officer um, in San Diego. And I've just been like a mad woman cooking. And he's like, my my nephew's 34 years old and calls me Auntie J. He's like, Auntie J, why don't you relax? I was like, this is relaxing. I got up this morning, I made pumpkin pancakes and pumpkin muffins. And my adorable great nephew is eating both of them. And it makes me so happy. 
but I just love the, yeah, you're creating something with your hands. It smells a little bit like the holidays. It's just, you know, all of that. I do feel recharged in a way that, you know, you might not if you just didn't do anything. You just have to know what it is that gives you energy and not drains you. But you write every single day. I have to hear more about this. You know, it transports me to just a happy place. Yeah. All Rise is, is a book that I just published and um, just made the top 13 in the Saba um, 2020 Awards, People's Choice Awards. But it's just fun because here's the thing about that. I told you I'm bullied as a judge. So I got really mad at the chief judge a few years ago. And I thought, okay. And so I started this story about a judge, much like me, cowboy boots, jeans, too much hairspray, all that kind of stuff. And she's bullied and she walks off the bench and says, I'd rather be a hairdresser. So her staff and, and some other people she'd sentenced come and sort of hire themselves. It's really fun. Now she's arrested for the murder of that chief judge. You see? So I, I wouldn't legally, nor do I want to actually kill someone. But <laughs> right. if you piss me off, you're in there my book. There are no book, throwaway okay? men. There aren't even throwaway yeah. judges. Yeah. Right. I, I just come with a warning. Piss me off. You're in my book. Um, <laughs> so I just, I kill off people who piss me off. And it's great satisfaction for me. They'll never know, you know, who's who and who's what. Well, maybe they'll think it, it doesn't matter to me, but it's such a great stress reliever because I get the last laugh. And I'm telling you, the last laugh relieves the stress. So wow. it's great fun. Wow. Yeah. So write every day. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I just, I feel like you, you can just change a lot of lives with just the two questions of what do you want me to know and how can I help? Did I get it right? What would you, what would you like me to know and how can I help? Try it in your own life and stop the why questions. Retire them to science. You're so right. You're so right. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was lovely talking with you, spending this time with you. Sari, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh my God. Love her. I know. I love her too. Uh, A lot of big takeaways from that. One of which you touched upon right at the end, which is the no more why questions, which I loved. Be the hero of your own story. I mean, she's so right about this is that we all want to be the hero of our own story. And also, if you're trying to help somebody who's in trouble, understand that that's what they want. They don't want you or need you to solve their problem for them. They need you to believe that they can be the hero of their own story and tell them that. She's so wise. I know. (laughs) And it's so helpful to hear that too, because I think you mentioned you're the same where you're just trying to fix all the problems of the world and everyone wants to fix their own problems. And also sometimes you're not because you feel like if you take on a problem, it's yours to solve. You might shy away from being supportive of a friend who's in need because you think you can't own all of it and you don't have to own all of it. Totally, totally. Right? Right. And the other thing which is helpful in that scenario too is that she was talking about trusting your gut and looking at the light in your eyes to really you know, have confidence. And like, I feel like women, including myself, are always looking for signs that our choices are correct. And it's just... The sign can just be that light in your eyes. I think she called it her inner girl, which I love yes. too. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, right? Just like you look at, look in the mirror and look at the light in your eyes. She had so much to offer. This is a really great episode. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Judge Aquilina for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. 
Sari Soffer is our producer. And Kristen Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 